Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is Podcast 351. We have gone through two periods already in our 10-period quest and journey through the Old Testament, breaking down 39 books into 10 distinct time periods for this purpose, to learn the story of God. That is what we call the Old Testament, what the Jews call the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, the Tanakh. And we've come to the third period, and that period is called the period of the Exodus. Now, it is the period that I date 1,500 to 1,400 years before Christ. That's 1,500 to 1,400 B.C. That is when approximately the 100-year period, it was actually more than that, counting Moses' birth and his experience. He died at 120 years of age, and so it would have gone past that 100-year period. But for approximation and for helping us to understand the time period sequence, I date Moses 1500 to 1400. That's the period of the Exodus. The books that are written during this time were Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Of course, Genesis would go into that because Moses wrote that as well. So that is the five books of Moses. The first book is the book of Genesis. Now, I'm going to give you both the Greek and the Hebrew names with that because all of our books are named after the Septuagint translation. That's the Hebrew Bible translated into Koine Greek about 270 years before before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That was done in Alexandria, Egypt, under one of the Ptolemaic dynasty pharaohs or kings, as they were called during this time. And so you have these names given that are Greek names, but we brought them right over into our language. And so what I'm going to do is help you to understand something of what these names are so that you can write them down and have them as a handy reference. Again, this is the period of the Exodus. And during this period, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And of course, he wrote everything except his own death account. And no doubt that was done by Joshua, his successor. And so the first thing we need to know is the date. So that's 1500 to 1400 BC. And so he wrote down Genesis. Now the word Genesis is a Greek transliteration. The word is Genesis. Genesis. And it is the word for origin. It's the word for beginnings. Now in Hebrew, it is Breshit. Breshit bara Elohim et Hashemayim v'et Ha'aris. That's the first verse of Genesis in Hebrew. And so Breshit is the first word of the Bible. And this is the way that most of these books are named just by the first word. Why? Because it was written there on the scroll. It was the first thing that they saw, so they named the book that. So Breshit simply means to begin with, in the beginning. And so that's the name of it, in the beginning. And so the Greek and the Hebrew name have the same meaning to them. When we come to Exodus, the word in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, is the word echodas. 
exodus, as we would pronounce it, but it is a compound word, ek, E-K, and then hodas, H-O-D-O-S. Echodas, ek is a preposition meaning out or out of. And then the word hodas is the word for way or road or path. And so the echodas is the way out. Now, it's interesting that the Hebrew name is shmot, or Shemot, as we would say, or Shemot. Depending on where you learn Hebrew will determine your pronunciation, just like if you say the same thing and you're from Boston, it'll sound a little bit different than if you're from Alabama. And so the same thing is true, but it means names, and that's the Hebrew name is names. And then you have the word Leviticus. Leviticus is the name of the tribe, and the word Leviticus is the Septuagint name for this book, and it means pertaining to the Levites. In Hebrew, the name is Vayikra, Vayikra, and it means, and he called, that is, he, God, called. And it's talking about his call to Moses. And then you have the book of Numbers, that's the fourth book. Genesis, the first book of Moses. Echodas, Exodus, is the second book of Moses. The third book is the book of Leviticus. The fourth book is what in English we call numbers. Now that translates the Greek name arithmoi. Arithmoi, that's where we get our word arithmetic. It has to do with counting and with numbers. And so this is the Greek name, but the Hebrew name is Bamidbar. Bamidbar, and it is the word in the wilderness. And it is a much more fitting name to me than Numbers, Arithmoi, that was used in the Septuagint translation. Why? Because the book of Numbers, as we call it, Arithmoi, deals with the period of the children of Israel in the wilderness, especially the 40 years when they rebelled against God and did not go in at Kadesh Barnea into the land of promise. And so it is is called Bamidbar. And then you have the word Deuteronomy. That is what it is in our English, and that is, again, a transliteration right over into our language. Deutero means second. Then you have nomos is the word for law. Deuteronomos is the second law. Now, it doesn't mean a different as in a second law, but second as in repeating it. Why? Because before Moses died, And before Joshua took over, Moses, at the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, remember there was a generation that now was living that had not seen the great miracles. They might have seen it, but they would have been very young because no one was able to go in the promised land. And everyone who was 20 years or above when they came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. God saw to that. That was a promise that he made because of the disobedience of the people. Now, why 20 years of age? Because 20 years of age is the age of adulthood in the Bible. There is a different accountability when you turn 20 years of age with God. It was then, it is now. 
Many people think that when Jesus had his bar mitzvah, what we would call that period, uh, becoming a son of the covenant when he was 12 years of age in the temple and he was left behind there by Joseph and Mary, many people believe that that's when he became accountable as a man. That's not so. That would contradict all of the teaching of the Bible. No, always consistently and confluently throughout the Tanakh, 20 years of age was the age when a person was held accountable as a man. That's when he could go in and out of war, and there was a different accountability. Now, if that had not been the case, the greatest example of that was this accountability that was given to those who were 20 years and above that they could not go in the promised land. There was somehow definitely a different accountability. And even when King David, as much as he was beloved of God, when he was getting things ready for the temple and later with Solomon, even King David could not lower the the age of a Levite to below 20. Why? Because you weren't even a man at that point. You see, ordinarily you had to be 30 years of age to be a priest after the order of Aaron. And then you had to be 25 to be a Levite. Well, David lowered that to 20, but he couldn't lower below that. Why? Because before that you were not a man. This is very important. These are just cultural things, biblical things that are laid out. And remember what I've told you from the beginning. This is a Jewish book. The Bible is a Jewish book. And we need to understand that every Bible writer, starting with Moses, assumed that the people to whom they were writing understood the language, number one. Then they understood the history, the geography, and the cultural customs of the day. And so where did these customs come from? Well, some were man-made, but they had a basis in the Bible in some way or another, and certainly that was true of the age of a man. And so Deuteronomos was the rehearsal and the summary, if you will, of the law of God before the children of Israel went over in the promised land, because Moses wanted to dispatch with his duty and say, look, you're going to go in here and you you need to remember what God told your fathers and what God expects of you. And so Moses rehearsed the law with them. He repeated the law in summary fashion, not every word of it, but in summary fashion. And so that is why if you want to really get an idea of what God expected of the people in the promised land, you don't have to go back and start with Exodus and go all the way through Leviticus and try to digest that and numbers and digest that. Go to the book of Deuteronomy because it is the summary of the law, and it's a wonderful readable book to read more so than Exodus and Leviticus. Now, the early part of Exodus is good up to about chapter 25, and then you get in the schematic and the blueprints for the tabernacle. That's a very difficult reading because it gets into a lot of measurements and details and specifics. So if you want to get an idea of the law, go to the book of Deuteronomy. By the way, in the law, the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy was most quoted by Jesus of all the books. That's right. Not Genesis, not Exodus, not Numbers, not Leviticus, but it was Deuteronomy. Now, in the section that we call the prophets, it was the court prophet, the great court prophet, Yeshayahu. We call him Isaiah. Jesus quoted Isaiah more than any and all of the prophets. Former or latter prophets didn't matter. Isaiah is the most quoted of all. And then in the writings in the third section, the Ketubim, that would have been the Psalms. As a matter of fact, out of all the three sections, out of Deuteronomy, the most quoted of the Torah, out of Isaiah, the most quoted of the 
Nevi'im was the book of Psalms in the Ketuvim, that is, in the writings. It was the most quoted book in the New Testament, most quoted by the Lord Jesus himself. No doubt it was his favorite book, as it is mine. If I had only one book that I could take with me anywhere in the world, and I could not have any of the rest of the books of the Bible, I would take the book of Psalms. Now, let me tell you quite honestly why. Because in the book of Psalms, you have every major Bible doctrine in the book of Psalms, not just in its beginning, incipient form, but in its maturity. It is fleshed out in the book of Psalms. It is a digest and a theology. If I was going to write a theology and I needed one book to do that, and somebody ought to do that, and then bring in all the ancillary passages. It would be good if someone would write a theology according to Psalms. And the theology according to Psalms would be the theology of the Bible because every major teaching is there. You just name it, it's there. So I want to encourage you to read the Psalms with me five every day. Read the book of Proverbs one every day. That worship book will get you worshiping very early in the day. And the book of Proverbs will keep you wise. So I want to encourage you to do that. So as we start through this period of the Exodus, I want you to hang with me because in our next podcast, 352, that's coming up, I want to talk to you about the dating of these books. I'm going to try to do the best I can to help you to understand why they're dated as they are and why I use the timeline that I do. It's a very biblical timeline. I don't get my timelines from such will be DeMille and the Ten Commandments. I don't get my timelines from German theologian, the Wellhausen theorist, and the documentary hypothesis. I get my dating from the words of God, from the Bible itself. And I'll share those with you because it is no secret. It's right there in the scriptures. And down through the years, I have studied with men that taught me that God gives us so we can turn around and give it to others. I despised being in classrooms where some PhD or THD felt like it was his responsibility to show you how smart he was and how dumb you are. These PhD and THD programs that are antagonistic toward the learner, trying to make sure that they, you know, they have paid the price and you're going to pay the price. If you're in an antagonistic PhD program, you really need to pray about going to some of our seminaries out there that'll help you and aid you and bless you and not curse you as you're going through. Because the goal of any Christian education is discipleship. And I'll end with this definition of Christian education. And I'll put it up against any anywhere because I believe that this is the definition that we need to use. And that is Christian education is intentional, intensive, structured discipleship. And the goal is to make us more like God himself, to make us more like Jesus. And if Christian education doesn't inform us and inspire us and teach us the words of God so we can turn around and disciple others, then it's not distinctively Christian education. And if you are in Christian education, it's going to have a distinctively Christian worldview.
That is, the Bible is the basis of everything. That means that God is the creator and the sustainer of life. That means when he says he created something and he created in a certain time period, he meant it. And so often people will say, do you really believe that God created everything that he did in six days? Well, of course I do. That's just what the Bible says. And I would have to be a fool to go against the Word of God. Because you see, when you do that, you make yourself God and think you know more than God what God has revealed to us. And only a fool would say in his heart, there is no God. And what is a fool? It's someone that continues to believe a lie in spite of the facts. Well, for On the Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On The Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at tonycrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at tonycrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.